And we make it about a lot of other things, don't we? We make our worship time a lot about us. And as I was um, singing that song with you guys this morning, there was one thought that kept going over and over in my head as I'm standing there and sitting, thinking about the pastor's role as the chief repenter. That, that song is about a repentant heart. It says, I'm sorry, God, for the thing that I've made it. And as I sat there, I went, the chief job of me most times is to be the first, the chief repenter, the one who repents first. And um, so it is with that repentant heart that uh, we come in this morning with those things, maybe that I've made it about me, maybe I've made it about others, maybe I've made it about you sometimes, thinking that you know, if you guys are happy with me, then that means I'm doing my job. And really it's about Jesus, it's about him and about who he is for you and who he is for me, right? So I think again this morning, uh, as we get ready to get into the word, I would guess that there are three types of people um, in the room here this morning. And these three types of people, there may be other types, but I'm kind of narrowing it to a, a, a basic thing. There are three types of people here this morning, and there are those that are here at Carleton Community Church this morning that they are seeking to know who God is. Or maybe they just, they haven't met with Him yet. Maybe they haven't met in relationship with Him yet. But they're seeking to kind of find out just who is God, who is this Jesus that these people are seeing to this morning. There are those that maybe have um, just let life sort of get a hold of them. And they're coming to church this morning, they're coming back after maybe some time away and saying, you know, I want to return my heart back to God this morning. And then there are those in here this morning that are committed to God and committed to His work. Well, I want to say that this morning in our text, there is something for every one of us. Whether we're just here seeking God, whether we're returning to God after some absence, or whether it is that we are committed to God and His work. That God's word is for us this morning. And so, if you would, open to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be in verse 13. We'll begin there, we'll go through the end of the chapter, and then, as is uh, my usual mode of operation, I'll go backwards and start at verse 13 and, and try to unfold some things in there. Um, i got to tell you that in my study this week, I, I spent... Um, probably a whole day on verse 13, um, studying it, pulling stuff out, and like, and then I read through the rest of it. I mean, it all needs to be there. It all needs to be spoken. It all needs to be said. Um, but I could spend the whole morning here on verse 13, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So anyway, let's pray for the word again, and then I'll read this through. Lord, Father, I ask humbly that the power of your Holy Spirit would fill this place that would... Um, take over our time in your word and that you would speak uh, your truth to us, that we would glean all that you have for us and that we would come to understand as we sang in that song that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus in what we proclaim. It's all about Jesus in what we live. And Lord, um, I ask that those who are uh, in here that are committed to your work and committed to you, God, that um, as we live our lives out this week, that we would be um, recognizable, that people would look and we could be recognized as those who had spent time with Jesus. 
And so, Lord, that is my prayer this morning. Please, Lord, empty uh, me of myself. Let your words just ring out. And those things that that maybe come up that are not of you, Lord, may we discard them quickly. Uh, May we not appropriate those things. But just the words that you would have us hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So, in our text today, there's a a lot to see. Um, And mainly what I think, uh, these a couple of points that we should look at is that the true witness of Christ, it demands a response. You see, that when God is present, it's not ambiguous. We talked last week about the reality of Christ, that when Christ is there, he is really there. And I say this, that when the witness of Christ is present, that it's not an ambiguous presence. It is to say that when God is present, he is the only reality that there is. There is but one reality, and that reality is Jesus Christ. That is the reality. It's the way the world works. It's the way things just are. It's the way things work. And it's not ambiguous. It's not something that we say, well, I don't understand what's going on here. No. Christ is the reality that we see. And then, there's a response to Christ, and it's not ambivalent. We can't be ambivalent to Christ. There is no such thing. I I don't believe that there's any such thing as being ambivalent to the presence of God. That God is here. It demands a response. And you will. You will respond. Again, 
It's not ambiguous. The presence of God is not ambiguous. It is clear that God is present, that God is here. It is clear that God is in this room right now, that God is present. And it is also clear to me and to what the Word of God says that in this room, you cannot be ambivalent. You can't just say, I don't care about this. I don't know. I don't think. I'm, I'm not going to respond whatsoever. I'm just going to sit and just be uh, uh, warming up this seat. And I'm just going to sit here. And I'm not going to let any of this affect me. It is impossible. I believe that it is impossible. And I believe that the word of God here is going to clearly point this out to us. Because remember that Jesus, when he uh, was in Revelation and he's revealed himself, in chapter 3, and he's revealed himself to the Laodiceans, right? And in verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you're neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, there's no room for lukewarmness. There's no room for ambivalence. But I'm going to dare say that it is impossible to be ambivalent. It is impossible to be lukewarm. It's impossible. We're going to see this. So, next I have a, a question that uh, I want to ask you, and I'm asking of myself, and I think was being asked here. Is, how does the world identify you? How does the world identify you? How are you identified in the, in the world? How are you seen? How are you known? In some ways, you know, we are, we are seen as a father. You know, my son is over there and some of you know him and you would say, that is Dylan's dad. That's an identifying mark of who I am. Um, there's many other things that, that we have that come at us that kind of give us some sense of identity of who we are. Well, when you think about, and I think about young people in the world, one of the things that young people are really searching for, that they're really after, is identity. Who am I? Who am I? And, and what does it matter? What does it matter who I am? I especially think of this when I spend a lot of time in, um, in the juvenile detention center. Not as a juvenile. <laughs> um, but, but when I spent time there with kids, with young kids, and most of the problems that I saw that were going on in their lives was a false sense of identity. They had grabbed an identity that either their home life told them it was, that's who, this is who you are. And they believed that lie. Or internally, from maybe past mistakes, they identified themselves only with that mistake. I'm just this. I'm only ever going to be that. Right? And I believe that those identifiers are alive from the pit of hell. I really do. I think also that our world forms then, our, our worldviews are then formed by a false identity. And their worldviews are definitely formed by that identity. They view the world in the picture that they've been given, in the identity that they hold on to. Well, you see, this worldview, it's, it's false, but it's handed to us. It's handed to us by society, it's handed to us by schools. It's handed to us sometimes by our family and our friends, people we love and care about, say something to us. And maybe not even in, with ill meaning, but they say something and then we grab a hold of that and say, this is who I am. This is all that I am. 
and it's a mistake to, to grab that and, and have that be our worldview. Well, I've been reading this um, excellent book on evangelism that one of our dear sisters here in the congregation gave to me. And in the book, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, he says this, The same rising tide of secularism and materialism that rejects truth claims is offended by absolute moral standards, and it's proving to be an empty and hollow way to live. And that means that, excitingly, you are more likely to find people quietly hungering for the content of the gospel, even as our culture teaches them to be hostile to it. Doesn't our culture teach us to be hostile to the gospel? It's a worldview that is formed by a false identity. And yet, when those who are living in that identity that they've been given, that they've held on to falsely, they come to it and they go, this is empty. I have found that this, this identity that I've been given, this sense of, of how the world really works, I, I find when I get to the end of the day that it just does not satisfy. I just find myself empty. And that for us as believers, as followers of Christ, is really, really super good news. It is. It's super good news because we then, as we are proclaiming the truth of who Christ is, we know that there's an underlying hunger out there. That the worldview that they've had a hold of is going to leave them nothing but empty. And so there's opportunity for them to respond to what it is that we have to share with them. So today, I hope that as we unfold this text that we're going to see that how a Christian is to be recognized and what the things are that we engage in to make sure that who we are and what we do, those things are recognizable by the world. But what is it that we want them to recognize in us? What do we want the world around us to, to recognize? Where is it that we then get a hold of our identity? So verse 13 has a lot to say about this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, look at this. This boldness of Peter and John is a perception, I believe, evidence of things not seen. What was going on in Peter and John, their boldness to proclaim the truth of the gospel, is actually evidence of something that they that, that those who were hearing couldn't see. They couldn't see what it was that had gotten to this point where these men had gotten to the point where they could just boldly proclaim Jesus Christ. That they could boldly proclaim Jesus Christ so much so that this lame man was healed. They had confidence and faith in who Christ was, and they proclaimed it, and therefore this man, he was healed. And they're, they're out there speaking this boldness, but it is evident, it is evidence of things that were not seen. Because look at what their view was. They perceived that in these men that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They said, these men have not had formal training these men did not grow up in the teachings of the synagogues. They did not grow up in this rabbinical teaching. And how is it then that these could speak so clearly about the work of God? How could these have so boldly speak, spoke about the word of God? And I think that what we see and what we have seen, and I'm hoping that we are going to get um, the breadth of the texts 
as we've been going through them because there's a lot more behind this as we've looked in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and especially in chapter 2 in 42 through 47 as we saw that these who were dedicated and devoted to the apostles' doctrine, uh, to to the fellowship of believers, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, that these things, these things were about discipleship, that they were being disciplined by Christ and that the doing flows from being. So here it is, they proclaim boldly what is seen, right? And they saw this. They recognized, they saw that these men were brought, this man, especially this lame man, was brought really from death unto life. They saw this, they could see it. And yet, they saw the evidence of the unseen thing. The evidence of the unseen thing was that these uneducated, according to them, these common men, the astonishing thing is, they had been with Jesus. They recognized that these guys had spent time in the most important place that they possibly could have. Is that they spent time with Christ. And that these things, these these, uh, apostles' doctrine that they were so steadfast in, the fellowship that they were steadfast in, the breaking of bread that they were steadfast in, and in the prayer that they were in, is all about they had spent time with Jesus And their time with Jesus was recognizable. It was recognizable. And further yet, this recognized um, presence of Jesus demanded some sort of response. It demanded response from those who were hostile. It demanded a response from those who were hostile to that. And so, in verse 14 it says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They wanted to be opposed. I need to be opposed to this because this is going against everything that I've been taught, everything that I believe in. I need to be opposed to this, but I can't. I cannot be opposed to this because it is very evident that this Jesus caused this man to stand who had not for all these years. I have nothing that I can say in opposition to this Christ. I cannot be ambivalent about this. Even those, they were hostile, but they said, I cannot be ambivalent. I can't be just wishy-washy about this thing because this Christ thing is real. I, I saw it right before my eyes. Now, so they go further here in verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Nobody in Jerusalem could deny the presence of Jesus. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't be ambivalent about it. Something has to happen. There's there's hostility, and yet there's hunger. There has to be a hunger going on there too because of what is going to come next. He says, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Let's warn them, don't speak anymore in this name. Because uh, although we are hostile to it, right? We are opposed to it. This is our our stance against this. We need to stand against this proclamation of who Jesus is. We need to stand against this. But we cannot do that. So let's just command them not to say anything at all in the name of Christ. Because there are people out there who are hungering for the truth of the gospel. There are people hungering to hear this word and this proclamation about Jesus. Let's dare not let them do that. 
don't do that. Stop them. Tell them not to say anything at all. Well, one thing I wanted to note back in 13 about the educated, uncommon man is who was it then that qualified them? Jesus qualified them. They were unqualified men in the eyes of the religious. But their time spent with Christ qualified them for the thing that they were doing. God qualified them. God called them. And through Christ and their time spent with him, right? Through being in the presence of Christ, the unexplainable was explained. The unexplainable was explained because these believers had spent time with Jesus. These believers had been qualified to do what they were doing by Christ himself. One thing I want us to see is that, you know, uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but I talked about this the other night with some friends. Is When I see it like a, an evil or a problem in the world or I see somebody who's come against me, I have like an either-or mentality. I think that either all things are good and they're really, really good and that there's no bad going on at this time when I'm, when I'm having favor or when it's bad, it's all bad. Like, if somebody has done something evil to me, I, I, I am automatically sort of in my heart, I, I vilify them and make them the Antichrist. <laughs> so, they, they, there is no good inside that person. That person is just evil and wrong. Right? And so in my mind, I have like an either-or kind of thing going on. And I think that as these guys were proclaiming the truth of Jesus... Sometimes you, as people, we can get into seeing only the hostility coming at us. Because the hostility is, is evident. It's like right in front of us. The ones who are standing there saying, don't speak in his name. Do not speak in Christ's name. Can shut us up. Because all we see is the hostility. Right? We don't see the unseen thing. The unseen thing is that those who are disenfranchised with what the world has offered them, we don't see in the depths of people's hearts and souls that they are just empty. They are empty. They are, they are finding that, that the way that they've lived is hollow and empty. We don't see that part. We see the hostility coming at us, right? We see the opposition. But underlying the unseen thing is that there are people hungering and thirsting for what God has. Now, this hostility, this, this evidence, right, that is seen this, this hostility and yet a hunger going on at the same time that people are striving and desiring to be with Christ. They are desiring the things that, that these guys are proclaiming, right, is there's evidence that there was time spent with Christ and this time spent with Christ produced a Holy Spirit witness of Christ. Their time spent with him that's an unseen thing. It's an unseen thing to us sometimes, especially when we have opposition coming at us. We just don't see that, yes, at the same time, while we are um, being opposed, that we are also having favor. And I think God operates this way in us a lot. We say either or, and God says no. Both and. Both and are going on. Yes, there is hostility. But there are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There are those who are hungering and thirsting for the truth of the gospel. Keep presenting it against all hostility. Keep presenting the truth of who I am. But we cannot do that. We cannot do that 
unless we have spent time with Christ ourselves. Doug and I were talking about this over the phone this week, is that I believe this in the whole core of who I am, is that we cannot evangelize and proclaim the gospel to the world. We cannot give it away if we don't possess it. We can't give away something we don't have. And we need to spend more time with Christ so that when we go out and we proclaim the truth of the gospel, it will be evident that this person, this man, this woman, whoever you might be, has spent time with Jesus. Although they might be opposed to it, I remember, again, speaking, thinking back to my juvenile detention days of speaking there. I got through and I had delivered this message and I thought that I had done a good job and that I had thoroughly explained everything. And there was a, a young man who sat in front of me and I said, hey, so what, how do you respond to this? What are you, what are you going to do with, with what I said to you? He says, I don't like anything you said. He said, I don't believe any of it. I don't believe one word you said. I said, oh. So I'm a little taken back. and kind of like a little hurt. Maybe I just didn't do my job. And he goes, but I can tell you believe it. And I said, well, there's a victory, right? He can tell that I believed what I said. And that there must have been some evidence of my time with Christ, right? There must have been some evidence that I had spent the time with Christ. That in front of him he said, that guy believes what he's saying. That guy believes it. That guy is living what he's telling me. Right? And he may reject it. But there are those that probably heard the same message at the same time. So both and is going on. That were hungry and thirsty for who God is for them. So verse 18 says, So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And verse 19, But Peter and John answered uh, them and they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can't help but speak of our time spent with Christ, can we? They could tell you to stop. And if you stop, have you really spent time with him? If you've really spent time with him, you can't help it. It cannot be helped. You tell me I can't speak about Christ, but... Christ is in, in me. It, it, it's who I am. It's who I've become. He has empowered me to speak this and I can't speak anything else. I can only speak that which I have seen and that which I have heard. I have seen Jesus. I have heard from him. I am in personal relationship with him by a matter of practice that on purpose I spend my time with Christ. And so as I spend my time with Christ and you tell me, don't speak in the name of Christ. Teach no more about this Jesus. You can teach about God all you want. You could actually teach the Old Testament if you want to. You could stand here and proclaim all that the Old Testament has to say. We're okay with letting you do that. We're even okay with letting you proclaim the name of God. We're okay with you doing that too. But do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they would tell said, We can't. We can't but not speak of Jesus because we have seen and heard him. We have understood the power of who Christ is for us. And I can't do anything else except speak that which, which I'm, I'm in relationship with. I'm just constantly with him and I'm constantly being fed by him. I can't help but say what it is that Christ has told me to say. I can't help but do that. I hope that that is true of all of us. 
The verse 20 says, as he says, for we cannot speak of uh, what we have, but what we have seen and what we have heard, right? We can't speak but what we have seen and what we have heard. I think back to Acts 2, 42, that they were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. They were steadfast in fellowship, steadfast in the breaking of bread, steadfast in prayer. The thing that dawns on me about that verse and why I think it's peppered throughout what it is that we are looking at, why I think it is the theme of all we need to to really look at about being a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian church? It means spending time with Jesus Christ, with in reality that I have spent time with Christ. What we don't see in this is that we could take the idea of being steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, being steadfast in fellowship with believers, being steadfast in, in breaking bread together, in sharing with one another, steadfast in prayer, and yet it only be an exercise of religious practice. But this is not about religious practice at all. It is not in one way about religious practice. As we were singing in that song, I want to get back to the heart of worship. Sorry for the thing that I've made it. Sometimes we've made Acts 2.42 a religious practice. We've made it about religion, about having a, a, a time in the Word of God that I've, I've got this mapped out for me. And so I'm going to spend from this time to this time in the morning in the Word. And I'm going to hang out with these people. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with them and all this stuff. But never ever in those things have spent time with Christ. Because it's all about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. It's only ever been about Jesus. But it's about being in his presence. It's about being in relationship with him. No religious practice can do what this, what, what made these guys do what they did. There's no religious practice whatsoever that could make them stand there and, and, and have men be astonished that these uneducated, common men, uneducated, common men and women who are in this room, there's no religious practice that could cause the world to take one look at you and say, that guy, that gal has been with Jesus. I can tell that they have spent time with Christ. No religious practice can do that. None. But I think that this Acts 2.42 is a good model for us about spending time with Christ. We spend time with Christ in his word. We spend time with Christ. Because doesn't faith come from hearing and hearing by the words of Christ? Romans uh, tells us that, right? And then also the idea of a fellowship with believers. It's fellowship with believers. But it is also, and more importantly, fellowship with Christ. As those who are in fellowship with Christ are gathered together with us who are uh, who are in fellowship with Christ, we are then in fellowship with each other. But the fellowship begins in fellowship with Christ. The breaking of bread, right? The sharing of all things. This breaking of bread is also a great um, picture to me of our time spent in communion. Our time in communion is to commune with Christ together. We go and commune with him. We are in his presence. And as we were talking about this on Friday night, you know, when you come to the throne of God and when you come to his presence, when you come to the communion table, when we come in here this morning for worship, 
What do we bring to our relationship with Christ? We bring nothing except our sin. That's all we bring. We bring into our relationship with Christ sin. We bring it to him, but in his presence, in his presence, he cleanses us, right? We confess our sins to him, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us, right? And to fill us, then, with his righteousness. Let's look at verse 21 and 22. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Look at this. There is no charge that can come against us when we're praising God. The world cannot charge us as we are praising God. They might think that we're out of our minds, right? Uh, there, there might be a tad bit of hostility toward us from worshiping God, but they, they, can't, they cannot bring a charge against us. What charge could they bring against us? These guys are praising God. They spent time with Christ and they can't help but praise God. It's recognizable, our praise. It's recognizable that we had spent time with Christ. And look at this. They couldn't punish the proclaimers of the gospel because the people had witnessed that they had been with Christ and they were praising God for it. And they're like, they cannot even do anything against him because it was obvious what had happened to this man who was, who was more than 40 years old. That because the presence of Christ was there in these men, that this man was healed. They, they could bring no charge. They could bring no charge. Well, I say this, that praise, praise of God makes us recognizable. As we praise God, it becomes recognizable that we have been with Christ. And even as we sang in that song, and I had no idea that, that Katie was going to choose that song this morning, but it really resonates with what um, I think the Word of God has spoken to me this week, is that getting back to the heart of worship, getting back to those things, repenting of those things that we've made it, instead of making it about Jesus. When we've made it about Jesus, then our praise becomes recognizable to the world around us. That man and that woman have spent time with Christ. It's recognizable. Now we're going to switch gears and see that you and I, we are in a hostile work environment. We operate in a hostile work environment. The world around us is hostile. It's hostile to the gospel. But like I said, it's not either or that it is both and. But we need to be aware of the hostility. We need to be aware that in that hostility, the thing that is going to get us over the hump, over the... To, over the line of pain that we must go through to proclaim the gospel. Because there's a pain line. And we must cross that pain line. We must understand that, yes, opposition is happening, but there's also those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. So let's look at verses 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your holy servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, 
and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That God is sovereign in the world. That God is working in the world is the very thing that these folks are hostile to. The world is hostile to God's working. These who were saying, speak no more in Jesus' name. It was obvious that God was working. And if God is working, it demands a response. I must respond to this. I cannot be ambivalent about God's work. I cannot be ambivalent about it. And the world here, he's saying this, that there were those who were set up by you, God, to be against the Lord's anointed. It was predestined and planned. You had this planned all along. That there would be those who would be opposed to you working. But your presence there demanded that they respond one way or the other. That there's a demand that, that God, these people, they are going to respond. Again, I see that in this, we see this, this um, hostile work environment. But what we don't see is the emptiness that those who adhere to that hostility come to. And that they are empty. And that the world is empty and they are seeking. There are those that are hungering and thirsting for who Christ is. They just don't know him. They just don't know him. So what is our witness? Our witness is that you and I spend so much time with Christ. So much time being discipled by him. That when we go out in this world of hostility, they would look at you and look at me and say... That guy has spent time with Jesus. Maybe I don't like what that guy or that gal has to say, but I can tell that they spent time with Christ. This Christ that I've heard of, I see it in them. I see that they're living that out. I can tell that they have spent time with Christ. That is our first and most powerful witness, I believe. And that's why as, as Doug and I were talking this week about discipleship and about evangelism, that they work hand in hand. But that, that in all of it, that, that this discipled, these disciples who are going, discipled disciples who disciple others is kind of the idea, right? Disciples who make disciples. That's, about, that's evangelism, actually. Disciples who make disciples. Because when, he, when Jesus tells them to go and make disciples, he tells them, teach them to do all that I have commanded. He didn't say go out and evangelize them and tell them about who I am and then leave them on their own. He says, no, go and make disciples and teach them all that I have commanded to you. To you. That means you and me being discipled by Christ. We say, this is what Christ has commanded of my life. I can't do this on my own. But I spent time with them and I'm a little better at it today. So here's the deal. You need to come with me. You need to come along with me and be discipled by Jesus as I am being discipled by Jesus. And then our witness to the world is that you and I together have been with Christ and it's recognizable. Now, together, now, doesn't the gospel then spread so much faster than if we just go out and proclaim it one, you know, one time to many? What if we proclaim it to ourselves every day and we proclaim it to our friends every day? And we spend time with Jesus. We allow Jesus to do a work in us. We allow Jesus to change us. Well, this hostile work environment, this hostile thing that is going on, um, it's not new. Um, And I think that this hostility 
that goes on in the world has really, um, in some ways, defined my ministry. <laughs> I've talked with lots of folks about this, but this verse in Titus, in chapter 1, it just it hits me because it really defines what it is that we're up against, right? And in, in Titus 1.12, it says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebu- rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And then chapter 2, verse 1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. All of this is true, right? But both and are going on. It's not an either or deal. There are those who need to hear the gospel amidst this hostility. And so this is really sort of defined ministry for me in my heart, is this. All of that's true. There's a world out there hostile to God. There's a world out there hostile to the things that I'm standing here proclaiming to you guys this morning. There may be people sitting in this room who are hostile to what I'm saying right here. But none of us can be ambivalent to that message. None of us can. We have to respond. There's a response. Right? And so he says this. Instead of focusing on the hostility, because it's there. This much is true. But as for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. For what? Well, it's for the sake of the faith of those that are elect. And we don't know who they are. But I think God is probably in this room right now speaking to a heart. Maybe two. Maybe three. That maybe God is in this room saying this. That today is the day I'm calling you. I'm calling you to myself. Now, again, as they, as they uh, look at this environment, this hostile environment, they are proclaiming this and, and saying this to God. But they're also saying that, God, you planned this. And we know this, that, that this was predestined to take place. That this environment that we're in, God, your hand is in it. That, God, you are present in it. That, God, you are working in it. We trust that. And then they pray. And they say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. He says this, we trust God that if we continue to proclaim with boldness who you are, that you are continuing to work, that you are continuing to heal that you are continuing to perform many signs and wonders, even greater than the one of lifting this lame man up. Right? And as, they're, as they are, are praying this, you know, I think that they are looking back again at, at verse 14. And they are saying that seeing that this man was healed, let's continue to see you do that work. I, I've seen you work, God. And I trust that the work that you've done in the past, you're going to continue to do. That you're going to continue to do that work. And so while there might be hostility and all kinds of things coming up against us, please, Lord, give us the power to speak with all boldness the evidence that we have spent time with you, that you have spent time with us. And that because of the time that Christ has spent with us, that we then are changed. And then... Verse 31, here's Holy Spirit evidence that the hunger is going to be met. 
And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See this, that blessed, in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? They shall be satisfied. There's a world out there that is absolutely dissatisfied with the way things are. And yet, they're being taught in our schools, and in some of our homes, they're being taught to be hostile to the gospel. But yet, there are those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Could it be that they recognize Jesus in you, and then their, their souls will be satisfied with who Christ is? So I want to conclude this, that in Romans 1.18, it talks about the message of the cross being foolishness, and being powerful. It's both and. It's both and. Sometimes we want it to be just either. We want it to either just be powerful that we, as we proclaim it. And then when we see that it's received with the idea that the hearer thinks it's foolish, then we shut up. We stop proclaiming the truth. And these guys pray for boldness. That this is going on at the same time. That it is both foolish and powerful. It is met with both hostility and hunger. Our message is met with both hostility and hunger. But it demands a response. And so this morning, as I think about that, we should ask ourselves that question, which one are we? Are we hostile to the message of the gospel? Or are we hungry for it? I think God is calling someone this morning and saying, I can satisfy your soul. I sense that you are hungry for the righteousness that can only be found in the person of Christ. I can satisfy that. There's one here today, I'm sure, that God is calling you. If he is, please see me or one of our elders and speak to us about that call, that God has, has stirred that in your heart. And we will gladly just pray with you and, and help you on this next journey, this next step of walking with Christ, of being discipled and disciplined by Him. So let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you again for your word. I thank you uh, for the power of the cross to save us. I thank you, Lord, that you operate in the both end and not the either or. That when you saw me in my wretchedness, you didn't just discount me and say, that's who he is. I'm done with him. But you also saw that there was a deeper hunger in my heart and in my soul for you and for your righteousness. And so you saved me. I pray, Lord, that this morning there's one who heard that message that today is the day of salvation for them. And we will give you great praise for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.